0: Hey Dr. Mike here. Breast cancer is one of the best studied types of cancer, and research has shown there are targeted nutrients for prevention, treatment, and survival. Stay tuned to find out more. You're listening to Live Foreverish, a show dedicated to helping you live just a little longer. Here's your host, Dr. Mike and Dr. Crystal Gosser. All right, welcome to Live Foreverish. I'm your host, Dr. Mike, and I'm here with my co-host, as always, Dr. Crystal Gosser. Welcome. Hi, Dr. Mike. Great show today. October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and so a lot of great uh, talks and discussions going on this month, kind of, you know, just giving us an idea of where we're at when it comes to the prevention, treatment, and survival of breast cancer, and we have a special guest today. Dr. Tina Kayser, she is a naturopathic physician and board certified in naturopathic oncology. She has served on the boards of the Oncology Association of Naturopathic Physicians and the American Board of Naturopathic Oncology Board of Medical Examiners. She is the editor of the textbook of the Naturopathic Oncology, a desktop guide of integrative cancer care. She also hosts a podcast called The Cancer Pod. Dr. Kaiser, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks so much for inviting me.
0: So, listen, great time to have you on, you know, October. We've been celebrating uh, October as the Breast Cancer Awareness Month for quite some time now, right? And I I thought I would like to start off with you, just kind of, can you give us a a synopsis, a summary of kind of where we are at today when it comes to breast cancer treatment, uh, diagnosis, and even survival?
1: Well, breast cancer today, the incidence has gone up quite a bit over time because of more and more screening has been done over the last you know, three, four decades. So we've mammograms are standard of care now around the world, um, at least for all developed nations. And so the incidence has gone up and our treatments have improved. And so with Breast Cancer Awareness Month, I think it's important for us to emphasize that everyone makes sure they get a proper screening of breast cancer and catch it early.
0: Yeah, that's good. And, and we've come a long way, right? At the end of the day, I mean, we there's there's it's great to know that there has been some awesome progression in our understanding of the of the disease, right? And how to diagnose this and how to treat it.
1: Yeah. And in particular, I think we've made the most advances in more aggressive breast cancers. I think that some of the tools we have now for metastatic breast cancer and the more aggressive subtypes like the triple negative breast cancers. And now that said, of course, we have a long way to go. We are not anywhere near uh, what I would call success. And success might not be completely eradication of the disease. It may be Good point. somehow finding a way of managing the disease process so that it becomes a chronic disease, like someone has diabetes or they have some other underlying condition, but they lead a perfectly normal life without any symptoms. That yeah. would be success.
0: Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great point. Now, I know Dr. Crystal, I'm going to hand this over to you. You got a lot of more detailed questions to cover uh, with Dr. Kaiser, So go ahead and take it away.
2: Thank you. I do, Dr. Mike. And I think we should give our listeners just uh, some background information on the field of naturopathic medicine. Because some people, especially where I come from, I'm from Savannah, Georgia, and there aren't that many naturopathic physicians around in in the area where I grew up. So can you tell us about the profession and and what led you to you know, the area of oncology.
1: Sure, sure. So naturopathic medicine and naturopathic oncology is a subset and a specialty within naturopathic medicine. But naturopathic medicine is a four-year graduate school in most states where we're licensed. Now, where you're from in Georgia and down in the southeast in general, we're not licensed in any states that I know of in the southeast. Mm. Most of the licensure is in, in the northeast and the west. Um, And in Canada as well. And I say that because it's a four-year graduate program, and I myself did a residency for a couple years in a hospital as well Mm -hmm. as that. But that said, where we, like all medicine, naturopathic medicine is is state-run. So all medicine is really mostly coming from the state level. And boards and licensures, and that doesn't matter if you're a naturopath or, you know, a, a therapist of some kind, it's all coming from the state. So it's... in. We have slowly but surely gotten more and more licensure around the country. And of course, we continue, we as Mm -hmm. a profession continue to try to get licensed. And licensure, the reason we want to do this is to differentiate someone who went to a four-year graduate school from someone who just calls themselves a naturopath because they, I don't know, studied themselves online or, you know, there is no... laws governing the terminology naturopath or naturopathic medicine where we're not Mm -hmm.
2: licensed. Yes. And so what is the role of the naturopathic physician in cancer care? I know where you're from uh, in Oregon, correct?
1: Yes.
2: There is full licensure. So you are actively or have been treating cancer patients
1: yeah even in oregon technically treatment is not what i'm doing it's an integrative approach i'm complementing i'm integrating i'm there is a mandate which and there should be as there should be everywhere that everyone sees a medical oncologist conventional medical oncologist um, for their assessment and for their treatment now if people refuse treatment that is an individual's choice generally Mm -hmm. Um, I myself don't do alternative medicine. I do integrative medicine. So I prefer when people are doing both.
2: Mm-hmm. I
1: think that gives them the best of both worlds. Like my, I see my job as, you know, helping steer them within the conventional okay. world because I've been doing this long enough to know kind of all of the choices in the conventional world and to help people make their decisions when they hit that wine in the road and should I do this or should I do that. Um, I do help people with that, but then I help them get through it and get through it as smoothly as possible with as little side effects as possible. And an interesting thing in conventional oncology is that the best data and the best outcomes are when people can do the full treatment at full dose on schedule. Mm -hmm. And that's what I see as my primary role when people are in active treatment, say they're, you know, Mm -hmm. they have to do chemotherapy or radiation. My job is to make that tolerable and to lower the side effects so that they don't have to delay their treatment and they don't have to reduce the dose. Because as you do that, you lose a little bit of the, you know, the if you're do playing a numbers game and there's so much benefit percentage-wise, you lose a little bit of, of benefit, or you could, mm-hmm. I should say. Nothing's a given when you're dealing with numbers.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So when a patient, let's say, you know, someone has a diagnosis, they're being treated conventionally, and they come to you what is your approach? What are, you, what are the first steps with that patient? Um, I know there is uh, research now on certain nutritional support that can, you know, help the chemotherapy work better. Um, so what is your role and, and what are some of those first steps with working with the with naturopathic physician?
1: I think some of the first steps is to assess the patient where they're at. You know, you know, so what we were doing as a naturopath, I mean, I do cancer care, but I'm still focused on an individual sitting in front of me when I'm in the clinic, right? So Mm -hmm. my assessment is who is this person? What are their habits? What are their foundational um, measures that they already take? Do they sleep well? Do they eat well? Do they move during the day? What's their support at home? Because when people go through treatment, it's not an individual, the entire whoever they live with is going through it with them, right? So do they have enough support? And I might even turn my attention to those caregivers because sometimes that's who brings them in my office and make sure that their loved ones have, you know, feel like they are also doing everything they can possibly do to help. Um, So what I do is usually do a full assessment, see where they're at and then prioritize from there. Like, what do they need as a person, regardless of treatment? You know, do Mm -hmm. they need help with their sleep, et cetera? And then what does the treatment entail, what should we expect from that treatment as far as side effects, and what side effects limit the use of that treatment. Mm -hmm. So if I know that peripheral neuropathy, right, numbness, tingling, and pain in the fingers and toes, limits the use of that drug, I will make that top of mind to say, let's make sure that doesn't get severe enough to stop a treatment that would otherwise be beneficial. So I see prioritizing kind of what we need to address as both a constitutional thing and that person and the individual Mm
2: -hmm. who they
1: are, what they need for support in a general sense of health, and then looking at their treatment and saying, okay, how do we get you through this? Because I kind of think of all of the conventional treatments when they're temporary, right? When you got to go through chemo or radiation Mm -hmm. or even surgery as kind of a a firewall. you got to get through the fire and to the other side. And there's different mm. ways of doing that right you can do it safely you can do it like i want to protect them as they go through it but they have to go through it to get to the other side mm-hmm. if that's the case that my job has been you know, it, for that time is very clear
0: yeah let me let me ask you a quick question on that so when you look at you know helping let's just look at chemo for a sec right um
1: mm-hmm.
0: as you said and and i love the, the way you said it and i agree with you you're know, helping somebody complete chemo on time on dose. Like that's that's key. What what kind of outcomes have you seen? Like when when somebody like you, uh, an expert, a cancer expert, naturopathic doctor, when you get involved and you understand the side effects, you understand the the, the nutritional um, you know supplements you want to use to support them through that. What kind of outcomes are you seeing versus somebody who doesn't see somebody like you?
1: Well, you know, it's interesting, right? My my audience or my, my patients are my patients, and I'm not at the cancer center seeing the general population, but here's the evidence that I think proves that this is helpful. One, I don't see, statistically, I just don't see what I read on paper. Like if there's a mm-hmm. 50% chance of this causing peripheral neuropathy, I will not have five out of 10 patients on that treatment have neuropathy. Now that said, I'm very mindful at all times of not interfering with the chemotherapy, right? Right. So I don't wanna say, oh, you didn't get peripheral neuropathy, but that's because we reduce the drug's effect. I mean, that's the opposite of what we want. Mm. So we're very selective and very careful. I think a testament to the idea of integrative medicine, integrative oncology, whether it's with a naturopathic physician or a conventionally trained physician who goes back and learns integrative medicine, medical oncologists the ones who are prescribing the chemotherapy tend to send them my, my way right so the medical yeah. oncologist who is seeing you know 20 25 patients in a day maybe only one of them or two of them are seeing a naturopath they can see the difference as well and i think ah, the referrals yes. from our conventional colleagues yeah. is the best testament to our to the medicine itself i think that that is like and the longer, this is this goes into the relationships in the bridge building that we have to have with our conventional colleagues in, in any given town, because we work together and we're all working for the patient. I mean, our common ground is we all want the best for that person,
2: mm-hmm. and so if
1: everyone just keeps that in mind and, and checks their ego at the door, then it works out. Listen, for I love it.
0: It's a it's a great answer. I, I'm not an MD who's involved with cancer. I've done a little bit as a radiologist and stuff, but in my own Limited experience, I can tell you, I've never seen um, a supplement like, like just use the neuropathy as an example, right? I've never seen nutrients that support healthy nerve function affect chemo efficacy. I've never seen it.
1: No, and this goes into understanding the various agents and understanding those supplements and those agents really well, and then understanding the chemotherapy or the how radiation works to. to um, kill cells and you know, understanding the mechanisms of both because sometimes it depends on the supplement, but a lot of times I, I tell people, you know, you could have a forest fire and a garden hose and that might be the equivalent of this supplement against that chemo, mm-hmm. right? Or is this, a, you know, is this, is this really going to do something to the chemo? So something that I emphasize all the time because I think this is also very good common ground is that we don't want deficiencies. Right. I think we can all agree that going through right. with any okay. kind of nutrient deficiencies, it doesn't matter if it's zinc, magnesium, vitamin D deficiency, we can all agree is not ideal. So I think that is also something I make sure with every single patient is like, okay, let's just first and foremost, make sure you're not deficient before we even mm-hmm. think about giving you things that are, you know, over, uh, actually preventative or high dose of specific supplements.
2: Right. But well, speaking of supplements, are there any that you almost always suggest, like they're your top ones, and maybe not supplements, maybe just dietary suggestions. Well,
1: the dietary stuff looks a lot like a Mediterranean diet, high in vegetables, you know, plant-based food. Um, I generally, this is in getting to know your patient and seeing where they where they find their joy in food, because mm-hmm. that's important. I mean, food should be something that is not where you plug your nose and swallow it down. I mean, food is a joy in life. <laughs> Granted, during treatment, taste arrangements can cause it to be not so pleasant or mm-hmm. mouth sore. Unless it's
0: broccoli. Happen. Broccoli, you have to close your nose to swallow it. Okay, anyways.
1: <laughs> well, as, as any vegetable lover, I'm going to just say, well, you just haven't had it prepared right. <laughs> <laughs>
2: That's right. Thank I, you. I, I enjoy it
0: now, but not when I was a kid, when you because what you said reminded me when I was a kid, that's how I did it. You know, you oh. close your nose, you can't taste it, shove it down. Anyway,
2: so. <laughs> I see that every so day I, let's, at the kitchen I, let's table go back to what, with my three year old. Let's go back to
1: what you were saying. <laughs> well, here's you know, the taste buds go into training when they're young. So, yes. so all of us have taste buds that change every six weeks to eight weeks. So, you know, when your when your child doesn't taste Coca Cola or extreme sweets, they think blueberries and apples are sweet. But so if they're true. you know sipping a sipping a soda every day and they taste an apple, they're like, that's disgusting. <laughs> this doesn't taste it like cardboard in comparison to. <laughs> Coke. <laughs>
2: Thank you. I I told Doctor Mike that maybe a couple of weeks ago, and he thought it was mumbo jumbo. See, Doctor Mike. Oh no! What? <laughs>
0: I never. I what? You... Doctor Crystal.
1: <laughs>
2: okay, I'm sorry. You you can continue. I'm I'm very right. curious to hear. Okay, so so things. I'll
1: just go right to supplement because I think the foundational okay. stuff is this always the same across the board. I mean, regardless mm-hmm. of what we're you know, just good health habits. Um, exercise, good sleep, try to keep the stress load down, avoid toxins and chemicals if possible. cause I, so there's like the basic foundation for health. Um, when it comes to supplements, probably the the three that I think of during treatment that I would say are more likely to happen is is a vitamin D of some kind. um vitamin d, vitamin d three specifically. It tends to be low in people with cancer in general because we test it quite a bit. And when we test it, we test 25 cholecalciferol.
2: Mm-hmm. That's a
1: mouthful, so most people just call it 25 vitamin D. Yes. Um, and we make sure that that's at least in the normal ranges. Where the optimal range is, is a little bit of an argument, but we can at least settle at 40 to 60 as nanograms per um, ml, I believe. That's close to what I like. Yeah. Yeah. What do you like, Mike? Yeah.
0: You know, I'm probably more in the 50 to 70 range, okay. 75 range. Yeah. yeah. I I push it, it a little higher. Well, you're in Florida.
1: It takes <laughs> maybe you see there might be a different range. I'm just saying that because um you know most of our I and and know I know people are low in vitamin D no matter where they live Arizona Hawaii Florida right. this is really common. Yeah. And. And there is something with body mass index, the larger the person, like if there's excess weight on someone, they're more likely to have a low vitamin D as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And in my experience, I've noticed that if there's an inflammatory condition and cancer qualifies, systemic inflammation can lead to lower vitamin D levels, or at least it's associated with that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in the world we live in right now with a lot of systemic inflammation due to Western habits and diets and such, vitamin D is often low. So yeah. that's one thing I will always put in there. And I will also often put in some way. Well, here's,
0: t- here's a tough question. Sure. I, but I think this, it's a legitimate question. And I think it's something we need to research more. So le- so, so, vitamin D, right? So is it is it the low vitamin D that establishes an environment that allows for more inflammation, et cetera, uh, in, in, in and cancer development? Or is it the inflammation that brings down the low vitamin D?
1: I don't know. There's an association. Yeah, I don't know, but causation. that's a great yeah. question, right? It yeah. is. It's it's a really valid question and I don't know the answer to it. Um, that's why I'm, I'm using the word correlation or association right. because I don't know either. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, but no harm yeah. in bringing it to normal. That yeah. part we can assume, See? Us, I think. Yes. So
0: we all, yeah, for sure.
1: Yeah, yeah. Again, that that common ground is important to keep coming back to when you're trying to build bridges. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think this is true if the patient is talking to the oncologist as well, just to assuage them that you know not all naturopaths and not all integrative practitioners are out there, you know, slamming what the conventional oncology is doing. Because you know, I have a saying, and that is: if is there cure on the table, if you have cancer, and there's cure on the table, as in with this conventional treatment you have a chance of curing your cancer i don't care what stage it is or what type of cancer you don't say no to that you don't say oh yeah i see that there's a you know a 40% chance that i could be cured but i think i'm just going to go you know to mexico and try something else like that's crazy yeah that's a really. great point now yeah. I mean, back to the
2: vitamin to the vitamin d just really quick do you what dose do you find is need it to bring them up into that range? And how often are you uh, retesting?
1: You know, I'm a big fan of of testing vitamin D at least annually. But if someone's in a low range and I put them on a supplement, um, I will supplement them according to what I think they might need. So it might be Mm -hmm. 2000, it might be 5000. If it's someone who has poor fat soluble nutrient absorption, I will know it so that they'll swallow 5000 a day and their levels at you know 20 or 25 mm-hmm. and it doesn't go anywhere, that's informative from my perspective because that capsule should be absorbed and that should not be, it should not remain low if you've been on that for, right. usually I give people yeah. about two months to three months to retest. Right.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, if it's still low, then I start to think, what other fat soluble nutrients are you not right. absorbing? Right? So we got, of course the obvious ones, A, E and K, but a lot of the, all of the carotenoids are fat soluble. Right. So are they yes. not absorbing their lycopene and their carotene carotenoids, the carotenes mm-hmm. and alpha carotene and mm-hmm. all of them. Um, and then the CoQ10. So, yeah. <laughs> and CoQ10. I mean, if you look down, if you start looking at it like, oh, all these are fat soluble. Oh, this person may have trouble. So that is informative from a naturopathic standpoint, because then I go back to the function. What's going on? Why are you not absorbing fat soluble nutrients? Um, so I will start there if they're having a hard time with the capsules, you know, I'll, I'll cut to the chase and just give them something that's sublingual or is absorbed mm-hmm. in the mouth somehow, mm-hmm. um, that avoids the digestive issue while we repair it and get them back on something that will, um, they could do longer term. The other is omega-3 fatty acids. Um, I find that it's hard for people to get them in their diet and I know people hear this sometimes, but I can't, it, it bears repeating that they are called essential fatty acids because they are literally <laughs> essential, right? I know we say that a lot, but are like, "Oh no, we 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 mean the the word literally. Like you must have them, and you cannot <laughs> right. make them. So if people are willing to eat sardines or mackerel or you know salmon mm. that's you know rarely cooked or medium rare." Fine. Listen to Dr. Crystal.
2: Mm. I love sardines. Dr. Michael, <laughs> I know, I do I do. Do.
0: <gasps> she has them at her desk in the office. You can <laughs> smell them, them a mile away when she opens up that can.
2: <laughs> yes, they are the best little tiny little great source of omega 3s. It's a great they way really to are. get those omega 3s. And again,
1: I have patients that are willing to eat their sardines. That's great. But a lot of people aren't. <laughs> and so for them, I will often have them take a, a fish oil supplement mm-hmm. um, because because they're essential and, and hard to get in if you're not Crystal, having them as a snack at your desk.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I know. And then, it's, and of course, you're, you really shouldn't eat the fatty fish every day, you know, considering what's in our water supply and our oceans.
1: Yeah, it does become a bit of a catch-22, right? So you right. don't, you, there is a, yeah, our waters are not getting cleaner. Um, I think that that is changing. I think we're becoming more aware. I, at least I'm very optimistic about that. Um, but for now you, you do have to, there's a little bit of a buyer beware in sourcing your fish as well right. as the fish oil. Yeah.
0: So, so, so vitamin D omega oil is very important. I think, I think our audience is waiting to hear a little bit about Dr. Chriso and I talk about it often. We, we kind of mentioned one of them, broccoli. What about the cruciferous vegetables? How important are they in prevention, treatment, et cetera?
1: Um, Most of the data on the cruciferous vegetables that I'm aware of is in prevention, um, Mm. There's some really interesting data out on the components of cruciferous vegetables and that's indol 3 carbinol that's the mm-hmm. dim, diindolmethane, methane, the sulfurophanes um, the components in cruciferous vegetables separately because that's how we study things we pull chemicals out and see what they do and, you know right and but these are right. all happen to be all of these anti-cancer compounds which are also anti Oxidant, anti-inflammatory, and some of them even encourage cancer cells to kill themselves—apoptosis. Mm-hmm. Um, they're all found in the cruciferous vegetables, so I do advocate people eat cru- crucifer- cruciferous vegetables. Um, one study showed that a serving of broccoli a week was associated with less bladder cancer.
2: And I just thought- one a week
1: one a week and i was like what are people eating as one a week was a was an uptick right so <laughs> it,
0: it unfortunately is an uptick right i yeah. mean that's, right.
1: that's 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 the
0: reality of it people are not eating that much cruciferous vegetables they're not
1: no so let's let's so there's cauliflower brussels sprouts broccoli kohlrabi cabbage what Water do i miss What kale, else
2: kale bok choy
0: lot of a lot of options out there a lot of ways mm-hmm. to, to to cook them to prepare them speaking of cooking them where where do you fall in is it is it raw is it you know you just just in like boil them you know like where, where where's your thought on that
1: yeah i think boiling of course is not ideal because boiling will unless you're going to consume the water as well but a lot of it goes up in smoke up in steam actually um if you boil it you're extracting it and you're you're pulling it out of the plant and into the water. Um, mm-hmm. An extraction is nice when you're doing medicinal teas, but you don't want to do that with your greens and your vegetables. Really, you want to steam them if you're going to do it that way, mm-hmm. so that the, the nutrients are stay in the in the plant when you go to eat it. And I haven't. An, my ideal is for people to brighten their food, right? So I don't care if they're going to stir fry it, steam it, or cook it in the oven. You want to make it bright. You want the bright color so that you're breaking open that cellulose plant wall. You know, it pops open. It literally breaks because of the heat, and you're looking at the vibrant innards of the plant cells. So, so it doesn't matter if it's carrots or broccoli or whatever you're cooking. When you're looking at those vibrant innards, they're they're bioavailable. They're right there. When you consume it, you'll absorb them. And as you know, if you cook it too long, then it turns another color, which could be more yes. like gray yeah. or dull.
0: But great, so the great, the great look of the broccoli I grew up with, the way my mom cooked it. <laughs>
2: I know. <laughs> it was tough. She was doing her, was her best, Doctor Mike. She she yeah.
0: she, she, yeah. Well, she was. Uh, she had five kids to deal with. So, yeah.
1: Oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's tough to to cook well for the masses. It is. It is.
0: <laughs> but it's interesting you mentioned that because I, you know, I, I do like to cook and stuff, and you know, Crystal makes fun of me and whatever. But um, well, I I have learned that if you want to know, especially with stir fry, that's the way I like to do vegetables mm-hmm. for the most part. The, the minute they hit that bright color, they're done. Mm-hmm. That's how you know to pull them off the heat. Once you mm-hmm. see that green go bright green, mm-hmm. that's when you know the broccoli raw or the 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 the, the, the whatever you do. That that's yeah. that's when you you pull them off the heat and they're ready to go.
2: So yeah, I have learned our- that,
0: Doctor Crystal.
2: <laughs> All right,
1: Doctor Mike. <laughs> <laughs> and since we're talking about food and preparation, you know, mm-hmm. during cancer treatment, there's the the book that I think everyone is should use or can use and you can find bits and pieces of it online rebecca katz k-a-t-z wrote a book called the cancer fighting kitchen Mm. i think it's the go-to book for certainly during treatment but even afterwards she's got some really great recipes on vegetable broths or or non-vegetable broths and in all these preparations but more importantly in the first 30 60 pages i can't remember how long it is it goes about a methodology of cooking for people who don't like vegetables and how do you make them savory and tasty and even during treatment when your taste buds may not be optimal. So it's a really great book and she does have a pretty good online presence for a bunch of free stuff if you don't want to buy the book.
2: Oh, nice. that's good to know. Thank you.
0: Yeah. Any any last so so we've covered a lot and there's I'm sure there's so many other nutrients um, it, 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 we probably just need to have you come on again. I mean, there's, there's, I mean, we, I mean, we could talk like soy, for instance, we could talk about soy for three hours and still not mm-hmm. cover anything. I mean, it's like, so it's so big, it, like it just in a quick summary, like what would you like our audience to know about nutrition and supplements and breast cancer?
1: I think there's certain things that again, back to the deficiencies, a common deficiency that needs to be remedied is iodine. I put mm-hmm. that high on my list because we do see deficiencies in iodine. You can't really measure them well, I mean not reliably, Um, but, and there's no harm in taking a little bit of iodine or making sure you eat iodine rich foods throughout the week. Um, It's just one of those common nutrient deficiencies and iodine deficiency is associated with breast cancer. So um, what people don't realize is, is when we say iodine, we don't just mean thyroid function. The vast majority of iodine is found elsewhere in the body. Every single tissue in the body uses iodine. Yeah. The thyroid uses about fifteen, maybe twenty percent of it. Mm-hmm. It Depends what resource you're looking at. Most of it's used by the rest of the body, the GI tract, and the breast tissue being. Well, most of- people
0: do not know that.
1: I was going to no. say, I, yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't think I glory. knew that. Per- I don't think
0: I knew that percentage either. That's that's yeah. that's something new. That's awesome.
1: Yeah. Well, what's fascinating is I wrote about you know cancer and iodine a few years ago, and that the amount the the deficit of information and what exactly iodine is doing in the rest of the body Mm -hmm. was what I was in awe of. I mean, it's all about the thyroid because of thyroid hormone needing iodine for its, you know, for its, there's T3 and T4 and that three and four is how many iodide molecules are on the, on the hormone. So we're really, everybody's focused on that, but iodine is essential and it's linked to breast cancer and stomach cancers in particular, and maybe others like ovary and prostate. and Well,
0: I, I think we have our next topic for you to come I on. I think
2: so too, Dr. Mike.
0: <laughs> Iodine, the breast and the rest of the body. There's there's the title. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Listen, uh, Dr. Uh, Kayser, thank you so much for coming on. Now you have a podcast. I also know there's a couple websites that you can be found at. So if our audience wants to learn more about you, say hi to you, how could they do that?
1: Yeah, yeah. So the podcast that um, that I just started about a month ago, but we're we're going to have a nice presence online. The Cancer Pod. You can find us at thecancerpod.com, and then my website at Roundtable Cancer Care. Where that's where I my personal website for Mm -hmm. my consultation practice, and I do lectures and consultations with professionals and patients.
0: Awesome. Thank you for coming on today. Thanks for having me. So you're listening to Live Foreverish. Don't forget, you can go to LiveForeverish.com and download a bunch of other podcasts. And whenever you do that, please like, share, comment, and subscribe so you never miss a show. That that's LiveForeverish.com. I'm Dr. Mike. Thanks for listening.